All right, so uh, this lesson is entitled Proper Worship on the Tabernacle. And what we're doing is we're combining all the content. There's a lot of content on the Tabernacle narrative. A little Bible trivia is that there's one-fourth of the entire book of Exodus is just on the instructions and the construction for the tabernacle. And this is a, that's a lot of content. And most people fall off the bandwagon. Whenever they're reading scripture, starting with the Old Testament, they go through Genesis and Exodus, and they got all the familiar fun stories, epic adventures. And then you get to the nitty-gritty details of how to build the tabernacle. And there are nitty-gritty details, and it's long. And most people are like, oh, man, I'm going to start snoozing through this. And then they just skip right over it. Then they hit Leviticus, uh, and then they just drop off, right? Don't do that. My purpose here for you in this lesson is not to go through the weeds and get lost in all the details. Of course, whole books, many books, volumes of books are written on the tabernacle typology. There's a lot you could say, as always, with every part of Scripture. But I want you to come away from this lesson having a renewed appreciation of why the tabernacle was built, how it's connected to previous stages of salvation history, specifically creation, and the cool typology of what God wants to do to dwell amongst his people and how that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his church and his liturgy, the Mass. So that's the great takeaway point that I want to have for you in this in the study, okay? So don't fall off the bandwagon. Definitely read it through at least once, especially with the guidelines I'm giving you here in uh, my outline and just the lecture in general. So before we dive into the text, uh, let's go through. There's plenty of introductory remarks to make here, thematic introductory remarks on the tabernacle as a new Garden of Eden as well as a perpetual or portable Mount Sinai. That's, <laughs> that's what makes this stuff so much fun is to read it in this lens. The tabernacle is not just a tent in the wilderness where God is hanging out with his people and they've left Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land. Really, the tabernacle is a new Garden of Eden and a portable uh, perpetuation of Mount Sinai. So with that, then let's look at this Roman numeral one, the literary structure of this tabernacle narrative. Because really, it's chapters 25 through 31 that records the instructions of the tabernacle. Then 32 to 34 is the apostasy of the golden calf, the a spiritual harlotry is what I called it. And we discussed that the last lesson, lesson nine. And then it goes back to the tabernacle in chapter 35, chapters 35 to 40 with the construction. There's a lot of repetitions there. It's pretty much verbatim the same stuff with some key differences here and there. But all this happens, so just to back up one more point here. The instructions of the tabernacle are given to God, are given to Moses by God when he goes up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights after the great ceremony of the covenant on cha in chapter 24 on Mount Sinai. So we see this in chapter 24. If you just flip back a couple of verses here, uh, really just one, one verse, <laughs> one chapter. Uh, on chapter 24, verse 15, Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And then he goes into the glory of the cloud on the seventh day. And he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, just to summarize that. While he's up there, all the horrible stuff, the spiritual harlotry and idolatry occurs on the base of the mountain, which we talked about last week. But it's super interesting. So then he comes down from the mountain and then, then you've got the construction. So why the repetition is the big question here. Why do you have a huge chunk of section, a huge chunk of scripture, chapters 25 through 31 on the instructions, and then you've got the golden calf apostasy, and then you've got the tabernacle again. Why repeat it? It's because there's a literary device going on here. There's a contrast between true worship and false worship, okay, between the sinfulness of the people and the holiness of God. And I got a great, there's a couple of longish quotes here that I have to introduce this lesson, but I thought, you know what, what the heck, let's just, let's just talk about it, uh, and I'll read you the quotes because it just does such a good job from your Catholic introduction to the Old Testament source that I've given you. 
So the first quote on this point about how you've got tabernacle, golden calf, tabernacle, that structure there is significant. Why? And this is what it says, quote, the concluding account of the instructions and the construction of the tabernacle are wrapped around the account of the covenant-breaking worship of the golden calf. The sacred author intends a contrast between the false worship of the people, which of course is chapter 32, and the prescriptions for true worship in the surrounding chapters. Moreover, the account suggests that the atoning liturgy that will take place in the tabernacle sanctuary is the bandage that wraps around the wound of the people's sin. That is the remedy and the antidote, at least temporarily, for the sinfulness of the people, end quote. That's a really beautiful insight why you have this repetition because chapter 32 through 34 is the golden calf and the sin and the breaking of the covenant and they've brought the, uh, the curses of the covenant upon themselves for disobedience. It's false worship. It's idolatrous harlotry, as we said. Now, the tabernacle then is wrapped around that incident as a bandage and, and to, to bandage up their wound. Their sinfulness can be healed through the true worship of God in the tabernacle liturgy. That is an excellent, beautiful way to look at the structure of really the second half of the entire book of Exodus and why there's one quarter of the entire book of Exodus focused on the tabernacle and why you've got the tabernacle instructions surrounding the Israel, the Israel's apostasy and idolatry. It's because worship of God is the means by which we heal our sinfulness. That's beautiful. Now, I'm going to take it one step further here that this quote doesn't say, but the end of chapter 31, just before you get to the golden calf, and the beginning of chapter 35, right after the uh, healing of Israel through the ministry of Moses, so right before the calf and right after the calf, you've got instructions on the Sabbath day. That's also very important because the Sabbath day is the day in which you worship God. All of the instructions for the tabernacle are geared towards worship of God and having Sabbath rest with God, the Sabbath rest that was really lost at the Garden of Eden. And in fact, that brings us to the next major point here I want to introduce this topic with you on is uh, another quote from the Catholic introduction of the Old Testament, and that is the concept that liturgy and worship is the overarching theme and overarching goal and overarching intention of this entire book. Remember, we've said so many times in the previous lessons, freedom from and freedom for. Freedom is not just doing whatever whatever the heck you want to do, right? Hey, I'm free. This we, we live in a free country. I can do whatever I want to do. Well, that's not true freedom. That's free will. Yes, you can choose to do whatever you want to do. But freedom is living in accordance with God's will for your life. Freedom is being holy. Freedom means not being enslaved by sin, enslaved to sin or to Satan right, and to death, but to be free from Satan, sin, and death, to be free for worship of God. Freedom is really living as a child of God, all right? And then we use our free will to choose that. And so with that point, let me read another great quote for you. Uh, it says this, quote, It is important to recognize that the activity of the whole book is orientated toward the communion through worship enabled by the construction of the tabernacle at the end. Neither the deliverance of the Exodus nor the law given at Sinai are ends in themselves. The Exodus liberation brings the people to a place where they can worship. In light of this literary form, we may truly speak of the liturgical orientation of the book of Exodus. The initial deliverance is all about worship. The conflict between the Pharaoh and Israel centers on worship, and the overall Exodus from Egypt culminates in worship. Indeed, just as Genesis is the creation account of the world as a place for worship, Exodus may be understood as the creation account of Israel as a people of worship, end quote. 
And that's awesome. So just as we kind of said about uh, this, the structure of this whole narrative is that true worship of God heals their false idolatrous worship. That's the point of the Exodus. Remember, who are you going to serve? That's that word avad we've seen so many times. Are you going to avad, which is to serve, to work, to worship Pharaoh in Egypt? Or are you going to serve, to work, to worship for God, for Yahweh, your deliverer? And if you're going to be free from Pharaoh in Egypt to be free for God and worship of God, the whole point of it all is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is going to give you the means by which you can be truly free to worship God uninhibited, right, uh, from sin right, and from slavery. And so this also brings up this last line here about the connection with Genesis. The, uh, just as Genesis is the creation account of the world as a place for worship, Exodus may be understood as the creation account of Israel as a people for worship. That's what I wanted to segue to the next section here is how then does the tabernacle and the whole story of Exodus renew and restore the worship that God meant for Adam and Eve back in Genesis? Because back in Genesis... Adam was called to avod God, to serve and worship God as a priestly son in the sanctuary of Eden. We talked about all of that in the Genesis Bible study, right? He is the son of God, and he is supposed to serve in the sanctuary of Eden as the high priest. Whereas like you know, all the cosmos, all the universe is this, this gigantic temple, and he's the high priest serving in the Holy of Holies. So we talked about all that with Genesis. In the same way, now Israel as a nation is called to serve and worship God as his firstborn son, like we saw in chapter 4.22. And, and Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in, in Exodus 19.5 and 6. They were called to be a kingdom of priests, a, king, a holy nation, God's firstborn son to serve where? In the sanctuary of the tabernacle. And that begins the general overview of this parallel between Adam serving as priest in the sanctuary of Eden and the in the gigantic uh, universal temple, which is the which is the cosmos, and Israel here serving as God's firstborn son in a priestly nation in the sanctuary of the tabernacle. So if you break them apart, if you just focus on Adam now, what was going on with Adam in the Garden of Eden? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter two fifteen, what did God say? Till and keep the garden, right? Till and keep it. And that's more than just taking out your rakes and your shovels and, you know, planting your roots and harvesting your fruit and putting down, you know, the, the fertilizer and all this kind of stuff. To till and keep the garden is liturgical. So to till is avad. It's the same word that we've seen so many times here in Exodus. To till is to avad, to work, to give service, right? And then the word to keep is shamar, all right? It's to, to guard, to keep, to protect, so Adam is told to avad and shamar the garden. Those are liturgical words. Those are the words that are used for priestly service in the temple and tabernacle later on. So what this means then is that Adam is the high priest serving in the sanctuary of Eden, which is all liturgical. He's supposed to avad it and to shamar it, to, to serve, to worship, and to work, and to keep and guard and protect. And in so doing, he enjoys communion with God in the Sabbath rest of all of creation. That seventh day, that covenantal day in which man worships God and has rest and communion and intimacy with God. Okay? But what happened? He screwed it up, right? (laughs) Through his disobedience, all right, through his rejection of God and his refusal to obey and to trust God as a heavenly father, he fell. He fell into sin. And we saw in the last lesson, if you remember, various parallels between the fall 
of Israel led by Aaron and the golden calf parallels what happened with Adam in the garden, right? Because Aaron in a certain way is a new Adam falling from grace. We saw all those parallels last week. Well, what happens is he, he disobeyed, Adam disobeys, he falls from grace, and then he becomes what? Enslaved. Adam is enslaved now to Satan, to sin, and to death. And he's also exiled. He's exiled from the Garden of Eden, and he's also cursed to Avad, to serve in hard labor, right? By the sweat of his brow, he's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. So he's serving in hard labor, exiled from the land, enslaved to Satan, sin, and death. We'll take all of that and draw the connections with Israel. Here in, in the book of Exodus, Israel is now enslaved, or excuse me, exiled, right? Israel's exiled to Egypt from the promised land because of all the shenanigans of what happened with Joseph and his brothers, and then the great famine and all that stuff we talked about at the end of our Genesis Bible study. So Israel is enslaved to, or exiled to Egypt, but now Israel also has to serve Pharaoh in the heart of Odah of slavery. He's not serving God. Israel is not serving God. Israel is serving Pharaoh. Hard, laborious misery of slavery, just like Adam has now serving Satan. And then a point C here in your notes, just kind of following this along. God then does what with Israel? Delivers Israel to what? To serve him, to avod him at Mount Sinai and to shamar, to keep the tabernacle sanctuary as a priest. So now Israel is a son of God called to avod and shamar him in the tabernacle sanctuary, just like Adam was to avod and shamar God in the Edenic sanctuary, the sanctuary of Eden, and to what? Have solemn Sabbath rest in the Sinai covenant. That's why the repetitions of the Sabbath day, it's just, they're everywhere in Exodus because the Sabbath day is rooted in creation and it's meant for proper worship of God and that's restored in Sinai. And then it's also a perpetuate in the tabernacle. So just as Adam failed, so too does Israel fail as we saw last, last lesson. Israel fails to keep the covenant just like Adam did, but, there, but Israel was restored afterwards. And really right there, you have a similar kind of repetition of going on of a creation, fall, restoration. Or you could also call it creation, fall, recreation. Adam was created, he fell, he's restored. Uh, but obviously there are major consequences after that restoration. Things just don't go back to normal, just like we saw with Israel. There's creation of Israel as a nation, there's the fall with the golden calf, then there's restoration through the intercession of Moses, but there are major consequences as a result. So then it's really amazing to see these parallels side by side between Adam as the son of God, called to Avad and Shamar, falling from grace, restored. Same thing with Israel, okay? So what does this mean then with the tabernacle? The tabernacle then, and here's the conclusion, the tabernacle is the restoration of the Garden of Eden and the perpetuation of Mount Sinai. So the union with God, that covenantal union with God that was broken in the Garden of Eden through Adam's sin is now at least partially restored through the covenant of Mount Sinai. And I say partially because ultimately Jesus Christ is going to truly bring us back to the garden, truly bring us back to intimacy with God. But still, Mount Sinai is a restoration of that union broken in the Garden of Eden. So Adam was created to be God's son, as we saw in the covenant of creation. Now Israel is God's son in the covenant of Mount Sinai. Now God wants to perpetuate, keep this intimacy. He wants it to continue he, God is not bringing Israel as his, as his new firstborn son to Mount Sinai and establishing this covenant and forgiving them of their sin. And then he says, okay, off you go now, right? Time to leave the nest, right? Time to move out of the house and go towards the promised land and conquer your enemies. And hey, good luck with it all. No, God wants to be with his people. 
right? He wants the intimacy to continue. Therefore, the tabernacle is a perpetuation of Sinai. The tabernacle is a portable Mount Sinai where God will dwell amongst his people. And so as you go and you study, as we will right now, study the tabernacle, we're going to see how the tabernacle in many respects is a perpetuation, a continuation of the Mount Sinai covenant because God wants to dwell amongst his people. Simultaneously, that tabernacle sanctuary is a restoration of the sanctuary of Eden. And and really, Eden was a mountain as well. We can't get into all that stuff, but all the covenants that God establishes with his people really were on mountains. I discussed this in the Salvation History course. Um, But if you go through covenant by covenant, Eden was a a mountain. Uh, Then you go to Mount Moriah for, uh, for Abraham. Of course, Mount Ararat for Noah, I forgot about. And then here they got Mount Sinai and it goes on and on. So, My point is the tabernacle is a restoration of Eden as well. So when you study the tabernacle, not only are you going to see hints and signs that the tabernacle resembles Mount Sinai, but it will also represent the creation account and the Garden of Eden. That is amazing. Okay, that's amazing. And that's what makes the overarching picture of the tabernacle so exciting. And when you apply the typology of the tabernacle, God dwelling amongst his people, restoring intimacy, lost at Eden, uh, portable sign, all this stuff that I'm saying to you, and you apply it to what it means to worship God in the liturgy of the mass, it gets really exciting when you go to mass. Because again, it's a perpetuation of the new exodus of Jesus Christ. All right, so lots to meditate and pray about.